You've experienced it. I've been told it many times, almost slanderously, certainly ignorantly. If God is so great and so loving, why is there so much evil in the world? God will prove during the millennium because of man's rebellious, sinful nature. That's why there is so much evil. This is never what God intended, and God's going to give us a snapshot of what he did intend. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, Part Two. Yesterday, we studied the devil and his freedom, and today, Pastor Carl will address the devil and his forces. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 8 say, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. As scripture points out, we see that the devil is again released for a short time. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And so the first resurrection are made up of believers. We'll see in the weeks to follow. The second resurrection is made up of all unbelievers. And so their ultimate judgment will be at the end of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? For a thousand years. Twice over in verse 5 and again here in verse 6, John speaks of the first resurrection, which is obviously important to him. And only those who are blessed and holy are those who are part of the first resurrection. Now, don't miss the fact that if there's a first resurrection, that must mean there's a second resurrection. Now, last time we discussed what we call amillennialism or amillennialists. And they have come to the false conclusion based on the anti-Semitically driven Roman Catholic Church that God has done with the Jew. I did a sermon some years back and I just quoted Pope after Pope after Pope and their evil anti-Semitic remarks. Since the destruction of six million Jews, they're a little hesitant to come right out and say those things. But it is an anti-Semitically driven church. Their theology says God is done with the Jew. We, the Roman church, are king. And so based on the fact that God was done with the Jewish people, that was rooted in anti-Semitism, amillennialism developed. Here's what it looks like in a chart. And there are Bible-believing Christians today who are not anti-Semitic, but they are amillennial. Millennial, remember, means a thousand. Ah, the alpha cancels it. So they say there's no literal thousand-year reign of the Messiah. There's apostasy. There's always been apostasy, and there's always been apostasy. That's true. But there's coming a day where there is the apostasy that God speaks of in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then they say the next event after the church is over is the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Uh, We stand in one big general judgment. The saved go to heaven, the lost go to hell, and that's it. So they view just one big general resurrection. Now, of course, the scripture speaks differently. In the broadest sense, there is the resurrection of the just 
and there's a resurrection of the unjust or the unsaved. And the first resurrection has three component aspects to it. If you remember, God dictated for Israel seven feasts that they were to honor. And it's part of what I think, among other things, kept the people of Israel together for all these 2,000 years since they were scattered to the four winds of the earth. How? Because God had this schedule that he would have them follow. And there would be seven feasts every year that they continue to celebrate even to this day. What many of them don't see, unless they are a believing Jew, is that the four fall feasts, or the four spring feasts, were fulfilled in the first coming. It's not by accident that Jesus literally actually died on Passover that his sinless body was placed in the grave over the first day of unleavened bread, that he came out of the grave on first fruits, and then at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, the Spirit of God came. So you have this typology in the Old Testament, and so one of the types concerns what we call the Feast of First Fruits. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Christ being the first fruits, and after that, they who are Christ at his coming. And so he speaks here of this first resurrection. And the first resurrection, just like the Feast of First Fruits, if you study it in the book of Leviticus, there are three aspects to the feast, and there are three aspects to this coming first resurrection. Um, As pictured here, you have a priest. Of course, he'd be in the temple. Obviously, I couldn't find a a picture of a priest in a temple. This is a cartoon, but this is the only one that would come out clear. But nonetheless, he would take out there in the field a sheaf of wheat, and he would wave it. It was called a wave offering. And the single sheaf represented the Lord Jesus, and this small group of... uh, strands of grain represented what would happen after Jesus was raised from the dead. There's an often overlooked verse on Resurrection Sunday, the first fruits of all creation, the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body was the Lord Jesus. But then Matthew notes, the tombs were opened. Why does Matthew alone note it? Because it's a Jewish gospel who understood things like the feast of first fruits. The tombs were opened in many bodies of the saints. What saints? Old Testament saints. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus and these Old Testament saints are the first fruits together, giving a picture of a harvest that would come. A brother here this morning, a farmer, gave us some strawberries. It was first fruits just on Friday. And I've eaten almost all of them. They were great. But you see, that's just a glimpse of the harvest that is going to come. And what Jesus and that handful of Old Testament saints who came out and resurrected bodies after him, that's just a glimpse of what is going to come. And so included in the first resurrection is also the church that will be raptured. And so all the believers who have died over the last 2,000 years... And those who are alive when Jesus comes for his church, we read this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And the word there is from a Latin, the Latin Bible gives us our English word rapture, harpazo in Greek, will be snatched away, will be caught up to meet the Lord where? In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to meet one another going up, and we'll see Jesus in the air. This is an entirely distinct event from when he comes to the earth and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. 
So the rapture takes place first. This could happen today if God so chose. So stage one is Christ, and then that handful of Old Testament saints. Stage two is a broader resurrection. The rapture stage three is where we are focusing this morning of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints who are raised. And that will happen at the second coming. It's all part of the resurrection program. Do you remember Daniel chapter 12? Listen to this word, Daniel 12 verse one. Now at that time, Michael, you know Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, talking about the Jewish people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sounds familiar? That's Matthew 24, 21 and 22. An unprecedented time, Jesus said, that it will be so awful unless those days had been cut short, nobody could have survived it. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about what happens at the end of the 70th week of the prophecy that he wrote at the end of the seven years. A time of distresses has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the only ones rescued by resurrection are Old Testament saints at the end of this time of distress, and they will experience everlasting life. Jesus, by the way, spoke of two kinds of resurrection in John chapter 5, if you remember. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. And it's the word horah meaning a a time is coming. He's not speaking of an exact hour. John uses and puts in the mouth of Jesus who spoke Aramaic the nuance of what he was communicating. A time frame is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good, you'll see deeds are in italics, right? You see it in your Bible. Uh, That means it's not part of the original. It's added there by the translators because it's, implied those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil or the evil deeds or works to a resurrection of life. Is Jesus saying that you're saved by good or evil? No, he just taught in the verses that preceded this that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if you are born again and regenerated from above, your life changes. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And if you know Jesus, your life takes on a new direction. There are people running around today, I'm born again, I could care less about the church, I'm born again, but I sleep with my girlfriend. I'm born again, I like to get buzzed every weekend. I'm born again, and I'm transgender, and I'm this, and I'm that, and their life has never changed. And so Jesus says, look, there are those whose lives have been changed, they'll be part of a resurrection of life, and there are those who'll be part of a resurrection of judgment. Two kinds of resurrection. And so there are several events uh, that will unfold in the first resurrection. And we'll study this a little bit more in detail. The first resurrection doesn't happen in one moment. Just like there's the first death and the second death. Does the first death happen in one moment? No, it's been happening for 6,000 years. Even so with the first resurrection program. The church will be raised up. Old Testament saints will be raised up. Tribulation saints who are martyred will be raised up. And they'll all be a part of this coming program. There's the general ingathering, and then at the second coming, the gleanings are picked up. The three phases of the Feast of First Fruits will literally be fulfilled. That's a sermon in itself. Now, I'm not here to make fun of my amillennial brothers. I love them. I had one speak in our pulpit, Alistair Big. Love him to death. 
I've had lunch with him several occasions. So I'm not here to make fun. But you have to really manipulate and disembowel the plain reading of Scripture. You say, well, how do you know that your interpretation of the Scripture is correct? Because when you, what I find too, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, I'm not saying about this big or anybody else you can think of. What I have found with most people who are millennials, they've never really studied the prophetic sections of Scripture. Because you get into a discussion with them and they don't know who's on first. I've been pouring over this for 40 years. I preach exegetically, verse by verse, so you can't skip over passages of Scripture. And you find within the Scripture how to interpret the prophetic portions of Scripture. The apostles in Christ and the Old Testament prophets, when they interacted with each other over prophetic portions, literally, plainly interpreted the Scripture. And so there's a literal raising that is going to happen. There's not just one big general raising and judgment where they're all separated out. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. By the way, you might ask, well, how do they interpret first resurrection and second resurrection if they're amillennial? I'll tell you. They say the first resurrection is when you die and your spirit goes to heaven. The second resurrection is when your body comes out of the grave. But in every place in Scripture where a physical resurrection is mentioned, when the term resurrection is mentioned, it's of a literal, actual body coming back to life, being raised up. A spirit can't be resurrected. So again, you, you, you really have to take the plain truth and ignore it, and you come up with some weird interpretations. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. Those of us who are church saints, Old Testament saints who are resurrected at the second coming, tribulation saints who are resurrected along with the apostles will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. Now that's all by way of review. This morning we want to look at what happens at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, especially as it relates to Satan since he is really the key figure that is mentioned. Three simple truths I want you to see. First, the devil and his freedom. The devil and his freedom. The devil is now freed from the abyss. Notice verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So we're told precisely, chronologically, that this happens in the prophetic schedule when the thousand years are completed. That is at the end of the kingdom age, which means during this thousand years, the world is going to have an unparalleled time of peace and blessing. Why? Because Satan is bound. Any sin that surfaces during this thousand years will have nothing to do with Satan. It will have everything to do with our fallen Adamic nature. Now, people ask me on occasion, I've been asked it many times over the years, well, what's the purpose of the millennium? I mean, why doesn't Jesus just come back, sweep us all to heaven, get rid of the lost in hell, and just close the whole program? I'll give you six reasons why he's not going to do it that way. There's a chart here. You can jot these down if you want. Six reasons why God will literally reign upon the earth. Reason number one, to prove his kingdom promises to Israel. God is first going to prove the promises he made to the people of Israel. 
Of course, the fact that the Messiah will reign over the earth is embedded in virtually every Old Testament prophet. For instance, God promised King David this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. That's never happened. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. That's never happened. But then God made a promise about Messiah's throne. When your days are complete, when you're dead, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. He'll be in your lineage. Remember, Messiah will be from the house of David. And I will establish his kingdom. How do I know this is not Solomon? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever. And this is a repeated prophecy found in dozens of Old Testament passages, and it's confirmed on the day Gabriel makes the announcement to Mary. There in Nazareth, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Israel will be in the land And for the first time, she'll fully encompass the land. When you read the boundaries in the Old Testament that God promised Israel, and you look on a map today of Israel, it's like, is this the same country? (laughs) It's just a little slice, what they have today. But what is pictured in Scripture is a much larger piece of property that God promised to them that even in the height of their glory under kings like David and Solomon, they never received. But God promised it, and God will keep his promises. Second, One of the purposes for the millennium is to prove his initial intention for man. God is going to show his initial intention for man. He gives us a snapshot of what God originally intended for Adam and Eve and for those of us who had come from their loins had not sin entered into the world. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was God's intent from the beginning, that man was to rule over the creation, but Adam sacrificed his right to rule when sin entered into the world. But that's going to change. God, during the thousand-year reign, will give us a snapshot of what it could have been like. For instance, in Isaiah 65 and verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. What does the amillennialists do with this text? They say, well, this is just a description of heaven. And so there's a very popular book on heaven who's written by an amillennialist, and he says, this is the future. It has nothing to do with the future. There's no death in heaven. You got ye little, no longer will little children die. And if a man dies at 100, he's considered a youth. You know, you, 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 and during that time, you say, hey, hey, young man, you know, I see you're 100 years old, and you won't be joking either. It will be true. He's just a young man at that point. People will live much like before the days of the great flood, an extended period of time. And then the prophet goes on in the next verse and says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The millennial reign will be perfect justice in one sense because Christ will be ruling with a rod of iron. Never again will someone be robbed of their hard labor. Now, we read a verse like that and we think, what's the big deal? But there are many parts of the world where people put their sweat and blood into growing things and then it's stolen. 
not during the Messiah's reign. Things are going to change, and things are changing in America. We've taken so much of our freedoms for granted. When I first went to the Ukraine in 1998, and I saw all the protective measures people had to take just so they didn't get ripped off. There was theft everywhere. You go into the church, and the church couldn't even put bars of soap in the restroom because people would steal it. That's what 70 years of saying no to God did to that nation and so many of the communist satellites. And that's what's happening to America. We're raising our puny little fist in God's face, and we say we don't need him, and we have violence and police being killed and innocent people being harmed and children being abused. This is what happens when a nation says no to God. When I was a child, we never locked our house except when we went on vacation. Most of the time, my dad left the keys in the car. That all changed in the late 70s and early 80s. But there's going to be a harmony with man and the creation and even the surrounding. In fact, he tells us not only will the desert bloom like a rose, he'll go on in Isaiah 11 and say, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and, and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. And then he says a few verses later, a baby will play over the hole of a snake, or you could render it a cobra, over the nest of a serpent. An infant will put his hand. They will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea. You've experienced it. I've been told it many times, almost slanderously, Certainly ignorantly. If God is so great and so loving, why is there so much evil in the world? And God will prove during the millennium because of man's rebellious, sinful nature. That's why there's so much evil. This is never what God intended, and God's going to give us a snapshot of what he did intend. Third purpose for the millennium is not just to prove God's promises to Israel and for mankind, but to prove his promises to the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians of their future and by way of application, our future, that some way in some fashion we will judge the world. He'll write in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Likewise, Paul said this to the church at Rome in the fifth chapter, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness... That's you if you've been saved. Salvation isn't earned, it's a gift received. But if you've received the gift of righteousness, because your righteousness like mine is like a filthy rag, you need to receive a righteousness that will allow you to know the Lord now and that will carry you to heaven. But those who receive this righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So sprinkled all the way through the gospels and the epistles are these promises that the church will reign with the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2. He said, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. By the way, it's clear in the Revelation, you're not saved by overcoming, you're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. If you are saved, you will overcome. And to those who overcome, that's a fruit of conversion, he will indeed give authority over the nations. And then in the next verse, he quotes Psalm 2. Listen to this. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
If you're new to the Bible, when you see that change of types, that you immediately think Old Testament quotation. If you have a Bible with uh, marginal notes, it will tell you where it's from. If you don't have a Bible like that, come tonight to meet the pastor. You'll be gifted one. He shall rule with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not simply to the church at Thyatira, but with the seven letters that he writes to seven churches, he ends each letter with, let him hear what he says to the churches, meaning this is not simply a promise for the saints in Thyatira, it's a promise to every believer in every church. But Psalm 2, if you know it, it's God the Father promising this to God the Son, but here's God the Son saying that we're going to enjoy it with him. Paul said it, we already read it, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Christ said this in Revelation 3, 21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just Laodicea, but churches like this one. This is all part of the coming kingdom. And so in Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says you have made them, the body of Christ, that is the church and tribulation saints and Old Testament saints to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And that's what John is echoing here in the 20th chapter. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. God the Father has given the right for the Son to rule and reign and he promises that we are going to do it with us. Now there's another purpose for the millennium, not just to keep his promise promises to Israel because God is a promise-keeping God, not just to prove what he originally intended for man, not simply to keep his promises to the church, but notice the next one, God is going to prove his promises that he made to God the Son, the promises that he made to God the Son. We just read a glimpse of it in passages like Psalm 2. The Father appointed his Son to rule and to reign and someday to inherit the nations of the world. If you remember in Luke 4, Matthew 4, Satan comes along and he tempts Jesus, if you'll skip the cross and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And that was a legitimate offer because when Adam lost it, Satan received it. The kingdoms, not the kingdom, but the kingdoms of this world. And of course, Christ knew that Satan's offer was nothing more than sawdust and sand and he immediately rejected it. But a day is coming, he will experience this. Listen to Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world, please note, it does not say the kingdoms. Now, some English translations make it plural to smooth out the reading, but it's singular in the Greek text, and that's important. And so in most people's mind, they think the kingdoms, especially because of Handel's Messiah. But in the Greek New Testament, it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When Jesus is tempted, it's the kingdoms, but when the Antichrist rules, he has one reign over the whole world, and it has become the kingdom. And when Jesus comes back, he'll have one kingdom as he rules over the entire world. And so his name is being mocked today. It is being used in vain. It is being dishonored. It is being walked over. But because he did what he did, God is going to honor the son. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 026. If you missed any of our series, don't forget that you can also download the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app, you can download messages to listen to anytime, anywhere. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.